This Lord's Day, we're in Genesis 26, verses 12 through 33. What we've been looking at as we've been walking through Genesis is what it means to walk by faith. And the challenge and the struggle we have at times is we want to walk by sight. And so we've been looking and seeing how God has worked in the life of His people, uh, recently in the life of Abraham and His call for Abraham to walk by faith, and how Abraham struggled at times to walk by faith, and and now we're seeing that same struggle play itself out in the life of Isaac. Uh, last week we read about how Isaac went to, uh, during a famine, how he fled and he went down to a place called Gerar near Egypt, and when he was there, uh, he w- failed to trust God. He was scared that he would lose his life, and so he lied and said that his wife was his sister. It's the exact same thing that his father Abraham had done at least two times before. And as we looked at that, we looked at how we now still struggle. We struggle to have faith. We struggle to trust God. But the great encouragement to us is that God doesn't struggle. (laughs) That, That while we struggle to be faithful, there is no struggle with God. God always is faithful to us even when we're not faithful to Him. And I hope you'll be reminded of that as we look to His Word today. If you would, out of reverence for the Word of God, please stand as we read this passage, and then I'll pray for our time in God's Word. Genesis chapter 26, beginning in verse 12. This is what the Lord's Word says to us. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there was a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then he dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, so he called that name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you. And will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do to us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank, and in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. 
And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from there, him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. You would pray with me. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And we pray, God, that you would use your word in our lives today. We pray, God, that you would hold back so many things that can distract our mind from focusing on your word. And Lord, that you would speak to us and that we would expect you to speak to us through this word. God, we pray for this in the name of Jesus Christ and the power of your spirit. Amen. You can be seated. Some of you may be familiar with C.S. Lewis from the Chronicles of Narnia, the books that are for children, but there's great wealth there theologically for adults as well. It tells a series of stories to help us better understand God. Another book that C.S. Lewis wrote that's very beneficial is a book called Mere Christianity. And in that book, Mere Christianity, Lewis basically walks through his own story of how he went from not believing to believing and he, he apologetically builds a foundation for why it is we are to believe and, and what we need to understand about God. And one of the things that Lewis points out is that it's important that we understand that God is the giver of all things, that there's nothing we can give to God that He hasn't first given us. And in that way, there's really nothing of benefit to Him because we're just returning to Him what was His already. Uh, he illustrates it this way, and this may be a helpful illustration with Christmas coming up. He said it's like a, a young child coming to their father and saying, Father, will you give me money? In this case, it was sixpence. Would you give me sixpence so I can go buy you a gift? And so then the child goes and buys the father a gift and gives the father a gift. And in the illustration, Lewis says, only a fool would believe that this father is any richer than he was to begin with. He is simply getting back what was already his. He says it's important that we understand this about God, that, that we are not blessing God, God is blessing us. That anything we can give to God is something He's already given us, that our relationship with Him doesn't hinge on what we can or cannot do, it really hinges on who He is as God. And we see more and more about who He is as we study His Word. And one of the things we've seen clearly through the book of Genesis is that God is a faithful God, even when we're not is that God is a trustworthy God even when we don't trust, is that God is consistent even when we're inconsistent. And we'll continue to see this as we read through this Scripture today about Isaac's life. Beginning with the first point that I've put there in your notes, we, we learn from this encounter Isaac has with Abimelech that God keeps His covenant with His people. Covenant is a word that we've seen a lot already in Genesis. This covenant is an agreement. This covenant is a relationship that God has with His people. And in this case, it's a relationship that He has with Isaac because it's a relationship He had with Isaac's father, Abraham. And as a result of this relationship, Isaac is now receiving blessing. In verse 12 we read that Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. I don't know a lot about sowing in the land and what's a good crop to get back, but I'm just going to assume a hundredfold. It's really good. <laughs> this is a, an exceptional return that Isaac gets. And at least we'd be tempted to think that this is because of Isaac, 
Moses makes sure to tell us in verse 12, this was because the Lord blessed him. Now the question then comes to mind, why did the Lord bless Isaac? See, we tend to think of blessing this way. We tend to think that if we have enough faith, God will then bless us. And if we don't have enough faith, then God won't bless us. And yet, I don't think that's a biblical teaching. Because what we see in the Scriptures is that often God blesses people on the heels of them having very little, if any, faith. And then at times, people are extremely faithful in the Scripture, and they just seem to experience calamity and suffering. That's the biblical picture that we see. And what we see here is that Isaac is being blessed, not because of who Isaac is, but because of who God is. I mean, think of what's just happened in this chapter. If you were this last week, you know that Isaac is not trusting God in the midst of a famine. And so Isaac is heading towards Egypt, and God has to stop him and say, don't go to Egypt. You're in the land that I'm going to give you. I want you to stop, and I want you to stay here. And I'm going to be with you, Isaac. He, he makes a promise to Isaac, words that he hadn't even said to his father Abraham, that he would be with him. Words that echo through the page of the Scripture until we get to the birth of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. On the heels of this, though, Isaac still doesn't trust God. He's scared for his own life. And so he gets into a situation where he's afraid that his life is going to be taken because of the beauty of his wife, that, that these people will take his wife to be their own and they'll kill him. So he lies and says she's his sister. He, he doesn't have faith in God. He doesn't trust God. That's what's just happened. In fact, what had just happened before this is a pagan king, referred to as Abimelech, had confronted him on this very issue. On the heels of that, the Scripture says, God blessed Isaac. And it becomes very clear to us that God did not bless Isaac because of who Isaac was. God blessed Isaac because of who God was. And friend, that's the same reason he blesses us. In fact, he blesses Isaac because he had a covenant relationship with Isaac's father Abraham. And if you remember, that's a relationship that wasn't in place because of who Abraham was. That's a relationship that was in place because of who God was. The scripture says God calls Abraham out of the land of his fathers, a land that we've learned was a land of paganism, a land of pagan worship, a land where they worship many false gods. That's where God called Abraham out of, not because of who Abraham was, but because of who God was. And now we see Isaac is blessed, not because of who Isaac is, but because of who God is. And that is the same in our life as well. And we need to be careful that we don't fall into this lie that blessing in our life depends on how faithful we are. Certainly we are called to be faithful, but be careful, Christian. That you don't think there's some equation out there that if I'm just good enough, God will do good things for me. Because the gospel says that God comes to us not when we're good, but when we're lost, when we're depraved. The scripture says we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And that's when God comes to us. Not because of what we have done for Him, but because of what He offers us. And He calls us to repentance and faith. And He calls us to walk in faith then with Jesus and He blesses us in that relationship with Him. Not because of who we are, but because of who He is. I was reminded of this principle not long ago. I was reading a story about two brothers who were living in a cave outside of Budapest, Hungary. 
And you think living in a cave, you think this must have been hundreds of years ago, but this was actually in 2010. About three years ago, these two brothers, uh, when they were younger, they had been abandoned by their mother, and so they essentially grew up on the streets. And at some point, they found solitude in this cave, and so they, they went there to be protected from the elements, and they were connected to different community outreaches where they could get food and resources, but they spent most of their time living in a cave outside of the city. On one occasion, one of these community workers came to talk to them, and they probably assumed they were just there to, to tell them about some resources that might be available, a, a meal that they might be able to get. But then they found out that somebody had been looking for them. You see, they had been estranged from their family because their mother had disowned them and their sister. That mother had been estranged from her family. And what this community worker was there to tell them was that their grandmother had passed away and that they, along with their sister, who was also in poverty, were the three heirs to her inheritance. About $7 billion. Can you imagine this for a moment? Two men who had nothing and they were living in a cave being told that they were going to receive a fortune. Now they didn't receive that fortune because they were so well behaved at Thanksgiving dinner. And they didn't receive that fortune because they were grandma's favorite. In fact, in the story, they had never met their grandmother. She had no relationship with them. They received that inheritance because of their bloodline. Because she was their grandmother. It was because of her, not because of them or anything they'd done. The gospel tells us, friend, that we have an inheritance greater than $7 billion. So an inheritance that can't be weighed in monetary value. That God comes to us when we are literally living in a cave in our depravity. And He comes to us and He offers the hope and the promise of the gospel. And that we respond to the gospel through faith in Jesus. And then that puts us into the bloodline of the King. Jesus then is our brother. We are co-heirs with Christ. And God does this not because of who we are, but because of who He is. And that's a principle we see over and over and over again in the Scripture. And that's why Paul says to the Galatians who... In that context, we're struggling with this idea of who's a part of God's family. Is it those who are, who are Jewish and they're born as Abraham's offspring? How can the Gentiles be part of this family? And Paul says, listen, you're, you're part of the family of God based on the bloodline you have in Jesus Christ. That's what makes you heirs with Jesus, and that's what makes you sons of Abraham. And that's why God blesses us. But that blessing may look very different than we tend to think of blessing. And we want to get the $7 billion when we're living in a cave. That, that, that's a blessing we want. But sometimes God blesses us through suffering. And sometimes God blesses us through trial and tribulation. And sometimes God blesses us in the midst of conflict. And, and we see that in this passage, which leads to the second point I've put there in your notes. You see, the world opposes God's covenant people. We see the world in opposition to those who follow God. We see it very clearly in this passage. Isaac is in the land of the Philistines. The Philistines are never people you come across in Scripture and you think they're the good guys. You know, they're, they're the bad guys. They're the ones who oppose the things of God. 
In fact, if you walk back in the genealogies and you go back to when we were talking about Noah and his sons, and you may remember his son Ham, how he treated his father disgracefully and how he received a curse, and really that curse fell on his son Canaan. Well, when you read that genealogy, you find that that whole bloodline from that point on from Ham, they're all cursed. They're all people who don't love or even seek to serve God. And among them are the Philistines. The Philistines, we know historically, simply adopted the religion of the Canaanites. They, they were polytheistic, meaning they, they worshipped a number of gods. They were paganistic. They worshipped gods of nature. And so if they wanted to have a good crop, they would make a sacrifice to the God of the harvest. If they wanted to have extra sunlight on their crop, they'd make a sacrifice to the God of the sun. If they wanted to have rain, they'd make a sacrifice to the God of the rain. They, they worshipped whatever false deity they felt would serve their interests. So you can imagine what it was for the Philistines then to have Isaac come into their land to deceive them for them to confront him on his deception, for him to stick around. And all of a sudden, he's the one who's prospering. He's the one who the Scripture tells us sows, and in the same year, he reaps a hundredfold. You can imagine along the way, these Philistines are making sacrifices to their false gods, and they're doing all the things they think they should do to, to, to have this great harvest. And they're looking over at this guy Isaac, and they can't even compare what's happening with him. He's being so blessed compared to them. And the Scripture says in response to that, verse 14, they envied him. Literally that word means they were angry and they were jealous. You ever notice sometimes that when people are blessed with something, other people just get jealous and they get mad. They get so mad that they've got something they don't have. And it just kind of eats them up. And that's kind of what we see here with the Philistines. They're just eaten up with this anger and this jealousy. And it leads them to essentially say to Isaac, you need to leave this place. And they do that because they, they literally hate him. He brings that up later on. They hate the things that he represents. In fact, they must not have thought very kindly even of his father Abraham because even though Abraham was in a covenant agreement with Abimelech's predecessor, to dwell in the land, to dig these wells. The Scripture tells us as soon as he was gone, they filled up Abraham's wells. Now just think of this for a minute. We've already talked about wells during Abraham's day are very different than the, you know, the picture we have on the postcard of the little house on the prairie and the well with the bucket. And, or a well you might dig today where they bring out equipment and they dig this well and they're done before long. The, the wells in Abraham's day were literally these massive holes in the ground that they would dig and dig and dig. And it took a long time to dig down literally to the water table to get to where the water source was. And they would build stairs that would go down these holes and they'd walk all the way down them to dip the water out and then they'd bring it back up. These wells were no easy thing to dig and they certainly wouldn't have been an easy thing to fill up. You think about this. Abraham had died... Abimelech was in a covenant to agree with him to allow him to dig these wells. Why wouldn't Abimelech just then start using the wells? I mean, they're already dug. Why not use them? But he fills them up. That speaks of just kind of an opposition here. He, he doesn't want the reminder that God had blessed Abraham. And he certainly doesn't want the reminder now that God is blessing Isaac because Abimelech and the Philistines stood in opposition to the people of God. And friends, that's exactly what we see in the world today. 
The, the, the world and the things of the world stand in opposition to the people of God. And yet it is we, the people of God, who often seem surprised by that. In fact, often I have Christians talk to me and they're kind of shocked to think that somehow the world does not just embrace the things of God. That they seem surprised that the world doesn't want to go along with the things of God. And yet the Scripture warns us and tells us to take note that, that there will be enmity, there will be, there will be conflict between the people of God and the world. John says it this way in 1 John 3, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Jesus said it this way in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus says, listen, the world's going to hate you, but it's not because of you. There's something deeper going on here. We need to realize this, Christian, because oftentimes we, we think we're the one with the target on our back. And in fact, we'll use that description. Uh, we speak of it if, you know, if you're a leader in the church, oh, you know, you've got a big target on you. If you're taking a stand for the gospel, oh, you've got a big target on you. The Scripture doesn't speak that way. The Scripture says the one with the target on them is Jesus Christ Himself. And the Scripture says the enemy hates Jesus. And when you stand with Jesus, then the enemy hates you, but not because of you, because of Him. The enemy's not just out to get you. The enemy is after the very glory of God. And he wants to diminish that glory in any way possible. Now I realize that doesn't bring great comfort because we're still a part of that process of being targeted. But know this. It's not after you. The world's not after you. The world is after God. And what the world, what the enemy who is behind this wants to do is he wants to be you in a position where in the midst of your suffering and your trial and your heartache, the point where you, he wants you in the point where you no longer trust God. It's like we sang earlier. It's easy to trust God when everything's going good. It's easy to trust God when we're getting the accolades and the awards. It's easy to trust God when the $7 billion check comes from Grandma we never knew. It's a whole other thing to trust God when it seems He has taken literally everything from us. But His Word says we're to trust Him nonetheless. The, world, the Word tells us that there's an enemy we have an enemy will use this word to stand in op this world to stand in opposition to us, but the word gives us great comfort that we can stand up to this because of what Christ has done, which is the third point I've put there in your notes. Jesus has overcome the world, and because Jesus has overcome the world, we don't need to stand in fear of it because He's already dealt with it. In fact, we can learn some things in this text from how Isaac responds to the world standing in opposition to him. Something that I think does speak to him learning to trust God. Notice for Isaac what happens when he's told to move on. The Philistines, Abimelech, comes to him and says, listen, we don't want you here and you need to leave. Now, Isaac could have said, well, let me tell you something, Abimelech. I serve the God who created all this. And I serve the God who's already told me I'm going to inherit all this. So Abimelech, you need to start packing up. But he doesn't do that. 
what Isaac does is he moves. He moves on to another area and he digs well there. And then there's more conflict that comes. There's more hatred from the world that comes. And so, again, Isaac could have said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm taking a stand because I stand with God and God's on my side and He's out on your side and He's just going to wipe you guys out because that's what He's going to do with the Philistines anyways. But that's not what Isaac does. Isaac moves on again until he gets to a place where there's no more conflict. And I think there's a point for us to learn here. I think Isaac is seeking as best he can to live at peace in the world that he's in. And Christian, I think there's something for us to learn there. Because oftentimes when opposition comes our way, we take our focus completely off the fact that Jesus has overcome the world and Jesus has left us in the world for a purpose and a point to be a witness. And we just get riled up and we get angry and we get mad and we start demanding our rights. And in the midst of that, we need to be reminded of what God's Word says to us about trials and persecutions and suffering and how we're to respond. Listen to this word from Romans chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. Now, I don't need a show of hands, but I'm just going to assume that's not anybody's natural response. <laughs> you start getting persecuted, you probably don't start spitting out blessings. In fact, the Scripture tells you what you spit out. Bless them and do not curse them. Because that's your natural response. Rejoice with those who rejoice, but weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. He goes on to say, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now, it may not be possible, but he says, if it is possible, live at peace. Why? Because that is a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel is not God came to us when we were all neat and tidy and looking good, and he said, I'm going to add you to this because this is going to be great. The gospel is God came to us. The scripture says literally we were enemies of his. It says we persecuted him. And he comes to us and he offers the grace and mercy and love of the gospel. And he offers us forgiveness. And he offers us peace. And we come into a covenant relationship with Him where we repent and we turn from our sin and we get to experience the peace of God, not because of us, but because of Him. And then we're in a world filled with conflict and we're in a world filled with people who are going to persecute us and hate us. And God calls us in the midst of that then to do what? To seek to live at peace. Why? That we might proclaim the Gospel to them. Again, it may not always be possible, but if it is... We are to seek that out. And when we do, it puts our focus back on Jesus, who, as I've already noted, has already overcome the world. And that's why we don't need to fear it. That's why we don't need to be anxious about it. That's why we don't need to worry as much as we worry. Because Jesus has already dealt with it. In fact, Jesus has reminded us that this world is not our home. Jesus even reminds Abraham and reminds Isaac that this place that they're in, they're, they're sojourners. That He's calling them to a greater land. And there's not going to be arguing over wells in that land. It's interesting to see how this passage plays out though. 
As Isaac continues to move and continues to seek to live at peace, all of a sudden Abimelech wises up to the reality that God has blessed Isaac and that Isaac is growing greatly in his riches and that one day Isaac might just get tired of moving and say, I'm done and I'm taking this place. And so Abimelech goes to make a treaty with him. And he tries to sweet talk him essentially. He's like, oh, we were at peace and we didn't mean any harm. And essentially though he does something very... Yet this should catch our attention. He says to him, Isaac, we can see that God is with you. I think this doesn't mean that Abimelech suddenly repented and became a follower of God, but what I do think it indicates is that when we seek to live at peace, when we seek to live according to the gospel that we have received, even the world takes note of that. Like Abimelech took note of this with Isaac. Now, I don't know how your story or my story is going to play out. Some of you in this room are suffering. You're in the midst of tribulation trials. You've got people in the world who are angry at you because of the things of God. And there's no promise in the Scripture that they're going to come to you and say, we want to make peace. But there is a promise in the Scripture that says, Jesus has already dealt with it. There is a promise that Jesus says, He has overcome the world. There is a promise in the Scripture that says they may not bow their knee to Him now, but one day everyone will. One day everyone will come to the understanding of who Jesus truly is. And when that day comes, they will see that He is the One who has overcome all of these things. And between this day and that, friend, we are called to walk in faith with Him. Perhaps the discomfort we have with the world is to remind us that this world isn't it. You know, sometimes we get to that point where we think it is. And we get to that point where we want to hold on to it so desperately because we can't imagine anything better than this. But then when the wheels fall off, And when the bottom falls out, and when we realize how little this world has to offer, then we begin to hope for something greater. That's why the writer of Hebrews says this to us, for here we have no lasting city. This is not our home. But we seek a city that is to come. And friend, that's the hope we have in Christ. It's not a hope based on how faithful you have been. It's a hope based on whom your faith is in. And I pray that it is in Jesus Christ and in nothing else. If you would, pray with me. Father God, we come to You in Jesus' name. And Lord, I do pray that our hope would rest in Christ. I thank You that we see in Your Word in Isaac's life that, Lord, even when he wasn't walking in faith, Lord, that You blessed him because You are the one who keeps the covenant. You are the one who secures our relationship with You. And Lord, we see that in this Scripture. I thank You, Lord, for an example of one who was seeking to live at peace in the midst of ungodliness and unrighteousness. And Lord, I pray that You would help us to apply that in our own lives as we live in a world full of sin and full of temptations and full of people who hate the things of You. I pray that You would help us to seek to live at peace as best we can. And Lord, we know that true, lasting peace comes when we share the gospel with the world. And so, Lord, I pray that you would burden us to do this. Lord, I pray for those this morning who have come in weighted down with the burdens that are on them, with perhaps worries 
and fears that the world has brought their way. Lord, I pray they would trust in Jesus. Lord, that they would trust that He truly has overcome the world. That this is not our home. And that there's a place He's called us to. Where there's no more tears and there's no more suffering. And Father, I pray that that's where our hope would rest. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.